Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary, and thanks, as always, to my season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com, and all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com. Today, my guests are Grammy Award winner J.D. Andrew and Academy Award winner Billy Bob Thornton. Together, they are the two founding members of the rock group, the Boxmasters. In this conversation, I had the chance to talk with JD and Billy about the formation of the Boxmasters, as well as their recording history. They have been together since 2007, with the lineup around them changing somewhat throughout the last 12 years. But Andrew and Thornton have stayed together thanks to their mutual vision for the band. The group started out by combining their love of British invasion music with a hillbilly style. Billy Bob Thornton is, of course, from Arkansas, so it's a natural fit. But as their output continued to grow, the Boxmasters have released six albums since 2015, and in fact, they did two in 2016, if memory serves. JD and Billy have gradually evolved the sound to become the rock and roll band they are Today. Speaking of British Invasion, the Boxmaster's latest album, Spec, was produced by the legendary and sadly late Jeff Emmerich, who engineered some of the Beatles' biggest hits. Why their album is called Spec? You'll have to listen to the interview and find out, but I love every single track. The Boxmasters kick off a 41-city summer tour this Tuesday, July 2nd, at Sony Hall in New York City. Strangely enough, even though you guys in New York are, are a lot of our listeners, and, and actually regionally, you all know I'm from Pennsylvania, so New York, Jersey, that whole bit, I'm actually not in the city right now. So coming to you from the greatest city in the world, I like to think we broadcast out of there, uh, but I'm actually in Pennsylvania right now recovering from a septoplasty, so if my voice sounds a little bit different, I'm not quite healed yet, and they also said my resonance could change, so I won't know till I listen back if I sound any different than I did uh, on our last uh, interview. So just throw that out there because I will be seeing the show in Sellersville, PA, on July 7th at a theater I've never been to, so I'm really, really excited about that. Now, for those of you listeners not in our region that I just talked about, with such a packed schedule, they're doing 41 cities in 46 days, I think JD says in the interview. The Boxmasters are no doubt coming near you very, very soon. Link to tickets in the description box below on talkfor2.com or at theboxmasters.com, T-H-E-B-O-X-M-A-S-T-E-R-S.com. Separately, Thornton and Andrew have had amazing careers on their own. Billy won the Best Original Screenplay Academy Award for Sling Blade, required viewing for me in an auteurs class as a film major in college, and he, because he also starred in it, and directed it, and everything was just done so impeccably well. I had to ask him my burning question that I've had ever since we talked about that in uh, in school. And of course, Billy Bob Thornton stars as Billy McBride on Amazon Prime's most streamed show, Goliath. And Billy actually reveals when the 2019 season will drop on the streaming service. J.D. Andrew has made an impressive career as a sound engineer and producer. He's worked with everyone from the Stones to Kanye West, winning a Grammy for the latter's first album. I ask him what makes a talented engineer and how the man in the booth who 
pushes buttons leaves his mark on an artist's record. Now, a quick word of warning. You know I like to go into technical detail and just alert you. These gentlemen were in a rehearsal studio actually rehearsing for the tour, and that studio was next to Burbank Airport. So on our phone call, you might actually, right as we start, uh, it was funny. We talked for about a minute. I filled them in on the format and where this was going to go. And right as I hit record, you hear a plane take off. And sometimes... Uh, I think because of the equipment in the studio and the equipment air traffic control, you know, just blocks away. Sometimes the audio scrambles a little bit and it gets a little staccato uh, thanks to their proximity to the airport. But it is nothing too major. Here now to tell us why they're not after Taylor Swift's numbers, our interview with J.D. Andrew and Billy Bob Thornton, the Boxmasters. J.D. Andrew and Billy Bob Thornton. Boxmasters, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you, gentlemen? Good. good. Yeah, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I heard an airplane uh, fly overhead. Where are you guys? Where are you guys sitting? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're 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 uh, we're in North Hollywood at a rehearsal studio. It's our last day of rehearsals for the tour, and it's right underneath the Burbank Airport. So about <laughs> every two minutes, there's an airplane. So. And it, it, the, the rest of the band is in the room rehearsing, and it's uh, rather crushingly loud. And so we have to make sure we keep the doors shut and uh, hope the airplanes don't fly over too often so that we can actually make a phone call and, and be able to hear anybody. Yeah. Are you guys rehearsing for the tour? Yes. Oh, awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, it's the last last day, and then, uh, then we take off and we start driving to New York City and our first shows in New York, uh, July second, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's almost here. Here we go. Forty-one shows in forty-six days. The twenty nineteen Boxmaster Spec Tour. I love it, and we're here promoting the New York date. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to first talk about um, how Boxmasters came to be. I know JD, you met Billy on a solo project, a couple of solo projects, but what was the moment where you guys said, "Hey"? There's a band here. We could do it. We could do a group project. Well, JD well, came. Uh, JD came in to work as an engineer on uh, a, a solo record of mine called "Beautiful Door," mm-hmm. uh, and uh, my uh, in- engineer on my solo projects was a guy named Jim Mitchell. And uh, Jim got a job working for uh, Fox Sports Network, and you know, as an engineer on the on the football games and all that kind of stuff. And um, <clears throat> so he got that right in the middle of the record. <laughs> and uh, So I, we asked, uh, we had a mutual friend, J.D. and I, uh, we didn't know each other at all. And I said, look, I need an engineer to come in and help me finish this record. And uh, she hooked us up, got me J.D., and uh, we got in the studio and started working on the rest of the solo record. And... Uh, during that process, uh, I was asked to sing a Hank Williams song for a TV show, and uh, I don't even know if I ever used it, but I, we did it. I knew JD played guitar, and I said, "Hey, uh, I got to cut this song. You're, you and I are the only people here, so let's, let's just do it, the two of us." <laughs> and uh, we cut the song. We liked the way it sounded, and we started talking about the British Invasion. And I said, uh, "Let's listen to some British Invasion records." and uh, J.D. being younger than me, didn't know all of them. He knew a lot of them. But, uh, so he uh, 
started listening to some of their stuff, and uh, I said, "Do you ever hear of Chad and Jeremy?" He said, "I think so." I said, "Well, check this song out." I played him yesterday's "Gone" by Chad and Jeremy, and uh, we cut a version of it. And what we decided to do was make kind of a hillbilly version, or kind of a psychobilly version, or what do you want to call it, of uh, of a Chad and Jeremy song. And uh, so, so the first. The first official Boxmaster song was Yesterday's Gone by Chad and Jeremy. And we decided to make a couple of records where I would sing them kind of like David Allen Coe, and we would do, uh, uh, you know, very simple beats and very, you know, kind of, you know, kind of trashy garage-like kind of versions of British Invasion-like songs that we wrote, and uh, but with a sort of country hillbilly feel. And our first two records were those sort of stylized, experimental records. And the people who didn't get it really didn't get it. And the people who got it really got it. <laughs> and so we liked it. We liked it very much. And uh, after that, we just started making records the way we normally sound, which is essentially people who grew up loving the birds and the Beatles and uh, the kinks and... Uh, uh, people like that. And, uh, you know, we're big fans of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And a lot of people had compared us to that sort of sound. But that's what Tom was. He, you know, he, he loved the Beatles and the Birds and the Burrito Brothers and people like that. Yeah. And uh, as the years have gone on, we were, we were always more rock guys than we were country guys, even though our first couple of records didn't reflect that. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, as as time has gone on, we just became the rock and sixties rock and roll band that we really are at heart, and uh, we're big fans of Big Star out of Memphis and the Beach Boys and the Southern California Sound and the Memphis Sound and the British Invasion. So that's essentially what we are. And I I never liked being a solo artist, right. and uh, I just wanted to be, be part of a band like I was when I was a teenager. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up in bands and. Uh, just wanted to be a singer and a drummer in a band. That was it. And uh, this this afforded us that uh, opportunity. And uh, over the years, we've had different members, but JD and I are the only two have been who have been constant members. So in a way, JD and I have been kind of like uh, Walter Becker and uh, well, you know Donald Fagan <laughs> and Walter Becker of yeah. Steely Dan, who were essentially <laughs> Steely Dan. They just got other guys to play with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You two are the box masters, but we play a lot. We play a lot trashier than those guys. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh come we're on, not, we're not jazz. We're not jazz dudes. That's yeah, not, we're, we're, we're not, not. That's not our thing. Yeah, we don't write many songs about college. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I uh, I want to know. Did you guys ever record? You guys have a lot of output with a lot of albums. I know you're in North Hollywood right now uh, in studio rehearsing, but do you guys, do you do, have you ever recorded out of Nashville and then maybe moved to recording in LA? Like how has where you recorded your albums influenced what you've recorded uh, over the years? Well, we, we haven't recorded in Nashville as the box masters. I recorded a lot of demos in mm -hmm. Nashville and recorded uh, some songs for, uh, a couple of my solo records in Nashville, and they were heavily influenced by that. But mm -hmm. uh, JD worked as an engineer in Nashville, so uh, we both had our Nashville experience. Yeah, but at heart, we were always rock and roll guys. And you know, we we've recorded in LA, 
you know, almost exclusively. Uh, we did record a song or two in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where we recorded a couple of songs in Memphis, Tennessee, but that's already after we were established as what we are. And uh, so the influence didn't really... Uh, yeah, it's it's not more of... It's the, the influence is more that we're a fan of those areas and the music-making aspects of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Muscle Shoals, the... The rhythm section from there, you know, they played on so many records that had an influence on us mm-hmm. growing up. And Ardent, you know, Billy cut a record in Ardent in what? 1972? Oh, no. 76, 78? Yeah, like 76, <laughs> something like that. Wow. Yeah, so it's like these places are, are part of us in, you know, the music that we grew up on. And, uh, you know, especially Memphis. Memphis is a is a, a big part of uh, the, the music that we grew up on between the Sun Records and Sax and all that. Um, but uh, but the actual, like, going somewhere to record something, it's it's really, it's just a room that you're recording in. Whether or not right. you're, um, you know, having an emotional experience, like when we went to Sun Studios and recorded a song one night. And I remember just sitting in the office and just, I started bawling. I, I don't you know, it was just something about the place just affected me that I, it was like a really emotional experience. And so it was really a, a treat to, uh, to be able to go there and uh, experience that, you know, the, the song that we recorded ended up not being anything that we've ever released because, uh, you know, it, it didn't sound exactly like an Elvis record or like uh, you know Carl Perkins or anything. So, well, they uh, don't have they don't have the same gear they used to have there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, but uh, but the experience of just being in that room and being at Arden. I mean, Arden's a righteous studio, and so just having a chance to go in there like that was definitely used on on a on a record. But uh, uh, you know. It's such a, a, a great thing, a privilege to be able to go to some of those places and still have them be around to actually be able to experience them. Because here in, in Los Angeles, there's so many legendary recording studios that have been torn down or become apartment buildings or just something else because the real estate value is uh, worth more than having a recording studio. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, bad sort of affairs. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, we record most of our stuff. I would say ninety, ninety-seven percent of what we record <laughs> is at A uh, and M Studios. Oh wow. Uh, which, uh, you know, we we're sort of friends of the family there, and we we recorded there, you know, for years and years, and uh, that's our main studio. It's called Henson Studios now. Yes. Uh, but uh, it's the old A&M studios where Carol King did Tapestry, they did We Are the World there, uh, and everybody from Styx to Joe Cocker to Joni Mitchell, you know, everybody's recorded there. It's and uh, it's, a, it's a famous old studio, and it's, it's really old school. I mean, they haven't changed it over the years. It's mm-hmm. the same studio. Yeah. That's that's really awesome. There's such so much history everywhere you go. And speaking of recording and, and all of that stuff, JD, I want to talk to you for a minute. What makes a good a successful 
a talented sound engineer? What do you have to have in order to to do it and do it well? Because I mean, to a layperson, oh, it's just the guy that sits there and pushes buttons. But engineering is so much more than that. I mean, what is the the skill behind it? What is talent? To you, uh, in terms of engineering, what do you look for when you see other engineers? Uh, I don't know. I think you, you mostly just have to have a natural love for listening to music. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also have to have... Uh, it's, it's kind of an attention to detail and uh, a bit of... Uh, you have to be a bit of a control freak. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, have uh, uh, you just there's it's it's hard to describe it because I have friends that are super successful engineers that they have learned to be able to record records and mm-hmm. and stuff but they didn't have a natural ability for it mm-hmm. but you know and they're way more successful than I am but uh, um, but they learned how to do it over the years but uh, at the same time the the people that I've been able to sit behind and, 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 and learn from most of them has just had a, an innate ability to just listen to a record and know how to make things sound a certain way. And so some people have a very light touch. They just know how to place a microphone and have it pick up with something that's beautiful other mm-hmm. people are heavy handed and can just really like turn the wrench and make things sound however they want. They just do things that are interesting and make something sound a way that makes your ear kind of, uh, you know, perk up. Uh, but it's, it's different. Kind of everybody has their own thing. And, uh, you know, this record, we had the privilege of Jeff Emmerich who, you know, recorded the Beatles. Wow. Uh, you know, he, he was he mixed and produced our record, and so he does a completely different thing, you know. That um, completely different thing than than what I would have done. It just sounds has a different sound to it, and uh, it's uh, it's a it's I wouldn't say either are good or bad. It's just you know it's like I love the way this record sounds, and I love the fact that it's different. And he brought his kind of sonic touches that uh, he invented essentially in the studio mm-hmm. and he brought them to our record and, and made something sound unique and sadly Jeff passed. And so we're never going to be able to get that sound again because it was something that only he could do. And uh, he, he was the only person that heard records the way he did. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really a, Really a privilege, and uh, I'm really happy that we were able to to do this. And JD, you yourself have worked with so many big bands. You won your gra- Grammy with Kanye West. Um, you've worked with so many big bands, big artists. How do you, as an engineer, leave your mark on a record? I mean, you've been touching on it a little bit, but how do you, when you sit down in that booth, what do you do that goes, okay, I did that, I I added that little bit of of flavoring in there how do you when you sit down put your mark on something well i don't know i mean with recording it's just kind of anybody that puts their hands on something Mm kind of leaves a mark somehow just by the choices of microphones you pick or 
most of the time I was never trying to actually put any sort of myself into it. I was just trying to facilitate the vision of the artist or the producer, whoever had the, uh, the rank and the ideas about, you know, what they were working on. So I was really just trying to be quiet, stay out of the way and do what I was told. And uh, if somebody asked me to change something or make something sound a certain way, then that's what I tried to do. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, I think, kind of how I started going into working with Billy is just keep an open mind, kind of do whatever was asked of you. And then as we started working on the band, then it's like, then you start trying to come up with ideas. And but the good thing is that me and Billy have a lot of the same ideas about how things should sound or, or how, uh, you know, the records that we love, the influences that we have, mm-hmm. they, they mesh really well. And so, you know, Billy tends to have the, the more, the bigger ideas than I would. Mine are usually smaller bits or smaller things to do here and there to sonically or and Billy's really good about coming up with the big picture and the grand scheme of what we're going to work on or how a record's going to sound or how the songs are going to fit together. And, uh, you know, so it's my, I try to help come up with the ways that, uh, can tie them all together. But, uh, it's, it's, that's the great other great thing about this band is that we are able to, make the records sound exactly how we want them to sound. Right. And uh, because we have the ability to record everything, write everything, and actually mix and engineer the records. So it's we're not trying to convey a vision to somebody else who then puts their sound on something, except for Jeff, who's like kind of the only person we'd want to have make a sonic statement on one of our records. The rest of the time, we want it to be our vision, and we're not having somebody else do that. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense, and that's wonderfully put. And now there's no easy transition into this because I, I warned you I was going to do this. Billy, are you there? Billy, did he get? I think somebody. Uh... I think somebody pulled him aside. <laughs> Good question. Hey, Billy. Uh, yeah, because because uh, uh, that's. I think I hear Connie. What's that? Oh, there you are. <laughs> Hi, Billy. Welcome back. Uh, he was, he was going to ask you another question. I was gonna oh, s- yeah. I'm ready. Sh- I was going to shift gears and ask you two questions about your acting career before we get back to the music and talk about this date in New York City. Number one, first and foremost, I, 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 you have to understand, I was a film major in college, and Sling Blade was required viewing. And so because of your triple threat, writing, directing, acting, the question I've always wanted to ask you since seeing that movie, how did you do, what is the key to doing everything so well that you get two Academy Award nominations and you win one? Because a lot of times when somebody does everything, some, some role suffers. But if you watch that movie, nothing suffers. How did you... Go literally 300%, 100% in all of your roles for that movie. I, I've always wondered that. Well, if it's your own thing and it's something that, you know, no one knows but you exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, 
it's it's actually you know people would say how do you direct yourself well you don't really direct yourself you already knew what you're going to do to start with mm-hmm. so uh there, there's just no uh um, yesterday anyway uh so uh you uh you don't have a middleman i yeah. mean like in other words let's say let's say i was just going to direct the movie and i thought hey i'll get this popular actor to do the part. It's like, well, how do I tell that guy since I created the guy and it's based on three different people put together that I was around growing up, then I, I can't ever get that across to them how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's not a character who's just some guy playing a dentist, you know, right. uh, it's, you know, pretty specific. <laughs> no, <And>, uh, <laughs> So you, you can't really explain that to anybody. And then in terms of the way I wanted the movie to feel and, and having shot it 25 miles from where we grew, I grew up, uh, you can't, well, in other words, all this stuff about, um, uh, well, I'll put it this way, acting and directing and writing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think writing is probably the most difficult, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, they're, but they're not that hard if you're, doing something that you know about uh, if you have a very strong vision mm-hmm. uh, if, if the vision is already there and you know the story and you know the character uh, it's uh, it's much easier to direct yourself if you know exactly what it is if you take somebody else's script maybe it would be more difficult but it was the whole thing came out of my own head so um I, I feel like it waters it down with each person you add into the creative process. I think the best art is a singular vision. And a singular vision doesn't always necessarily mean one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a few people, but they all have to have that same vision. Just like with your In band. In this case, it was hard for anybody else to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that, that makes perfect sense. And uh, so, yeah. That's, 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 I mean, the best way I can explain it uh, is that, you know, you just have something that you know inside and out, and then you go execute it, and you're not having to tell anybody else how to do it, Mm you know? Um, I mean, you know, our band, like you said, is very, very much what it is, and J.D. and I concocted it, so... uh, you know, we we know how we want it to sound. And as JD said, we have the luxury of having JD as an engineer mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, we produce our own records other than Jeff, you know, producing this uh, new record spec. And yeah. you can't beat him. I mean, that's like that's the guy amazing. who engineered the Beatles records. So, you, yeah. you know, it's not, uh, that ain't exactly chopped liver. So <laughs> yeah. uh, we're, we're pretty good. We're pretty good there. But other than that, we don't need to just call in the guy who made the latest three hit records or whatever, because we know we're not going to sell 5 million records anyway. Right. So, you know, we're not going for hits. We're not going for the most plays on the radio or whatever, you know, because we know we're not going to get that anyway. So if that's the case, just make your albums and sequence them like they did in the sixties and seventies and, uh, do it, you know, for the reasons that you started doing it, uh, as opposed to trying to get a result, you know, uh, 
I mean, a business result. Yeah. You know, the creative result, obviously, we want. But uh, uh, we're not trying to. We're not trying to outdo Taylor Swift here. <laughs> I, I think that's two different ballparks, gentlemen. I think. Yeah, uh, they're, they're, absolutely. <laughs> I think there's two different lanes, and everybody can stay in their own lane. And before we talk about this tour, just really quickly, real quick answer to this, because then we got to talk about the tour and, and uh, your tour date in New York, and then wrap it up. But I would be murdered if I did not ask you. When can we expect the new se- the third season of Goliath, and why so freaking long in between seasons? The show's so damn good. I'm a I'm a David E. Kelly fanatic, and it's like you gotta wait so long. When can we expect the 2019 season, and uh, it, what goes into it that it takes over a year to to get these new seasons out? Well, a lot of it has to do with when we shoot it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the streaming world, like Amazon, Netflix, you know, things, Hulu, whatever it is, in that world, they don't have any rules. Whereas if you're on NBC or CBS or something like that, they have a specific timeline. Mm-hmm. And in streaming, they don't have. So let's say we're on tour and they were thinking about shooting the new season of Goliath in July. I go, well, I'm, I'm gone from the 1st of July through the end of August. Yeah. And then they go, oh, okay, well, I guess we got to shoot it the 1st of October because we need to prep and all that. And so then we shoot it like that. And by the time we're done shooting it, uh, because we take our time shooting it because we want to get it right, you know. And it's like shooting a an eight-hour movie, really. Right. And so, uh, so we... Uh, we don't mess around with, you know, hurrying up like they do in network television. And uh, then you're done. Then you have to score it. You got to edit it. You got to put in whatever special effects, you know, there are. And uh, then they want to release it at a time that makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of giving it enough lead time to advertise it. So uh, that's why it happens that way. Uh, and which, you know, for the audience, it's kind of frustrating. You yes, know, but for the the for the for the quality of the of the show, uh, it, it actually helps. Yeah. So the new season, uh, the twenty nineteen one, comes out in October. Really and, exciting. Uh, and then we will, you know, decide at some point over the next couple of months if and when we do another season. I think Amazon is inclined to do another one. Yeah. From my conversations with them. So, uh, I mean, we've been the number one stream show for Amazon, you know, both seasons that have been out. So yeah. I think I think they're inclined to do it. So, uh, and I think I'd do another one. You know, I think one more season would be about perfect. You really look like you have fun with that and, character. Uh, you really do. So I, I do. Well, I, I'm kind of playing myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm kind of, uh, so the same guy driving to work every morning is the same guy when I call action. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not that hard a job. That's great. That's great. Well, speak, speaking of jobs, you guys have a big job, 41 dates in 46 days, kicking off in New York City July 2nd. What are you guys most looking forward to about playing here in New York, kicking the tour off? Well, I mean, you know, it's the big apple. That's the uh, that's the big prize, you know. And and New York is tough. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's like L.A. in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, uh, New York and L.A. came up, 
you know, over the years as the entertainment cities, you know. And so uh, people are so inundated with, with concerts and stuff, you know. And uh, so you got to bring in something special to people. But at the end of the day, uh, I think the most important thing is, is you got to get up there and be honest. You know, we're not up there to do a bunch of tricks. You know, we don't have we don't have any like uh, flares and fire cannons, and uh, you know, we don't wear any uh, uh, makeup other than to cover up a spot or two here and there. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, but you know, New York is tough because first of all, I mean. You know, we're playing the Sony Hall there. It's a new place, yeah. and it's, all, uh, of course, a new place to us. And um, we've, we have had very good luck in New York over the years, which has been really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't know if there will be 70 people there or 700 or 1,000. We don't know. Yeah. You know, and but, but the good news is for an audience that comes out and wants to be there, uh, is that we play the same show for 70 people that we do for 7,000. That's amazing. Uh, you know, we want we want those people to get the same experience. In other words, if we come out on the stage pissed off because nobody's there, <laughs> those people get screwed. And, you know, we don't want to do that. So uh, whoever's there, we're doing it for them. Uh, we're playing for the people who are there, not for the people who aren't there. Right. And uh, so... we. Uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the main thing, and uh, you know we, like I said, we don't run all over the stage and you know spit blood in the air and stuff. We we just play, uh, <laughs> we honestly play our songs, and we have fun doing it, and uh, we have songs with some meaning, and sometimes mm-hmm. we'll tell the audience why we wrote the song. You know, yeah, we like to make a connection with them. Yeah. And uh, will you mix? I know you say the progression was from that hillbilly British invasion mixture to now more of a of a rock sound. And, and you can hear it in the albums. But is the live show a mix of everything that you've done going back 12 years? It's um, mostly it's mostly uh, songs, uh, I'd say, from the last uh, you know five years with a few few older things thrown in there. But mm-hmm. We typically don't uh, break into the first two records too much because they are so stylized and so uh, different sounding right. that they can they can really derail the flow of a set. Kind of if you uh, throw in kind of that kind of that stuff. Yeah. So we have a really you know we we have a, a set that flows really well and. Uh, you know we're really happy with it, but if if the time comes that we need to break out a song from uh, from that era, you know we we know them, so we'll you know it just depends on the audience and uh, what we're uh, what we're up against, honestly. And so if if it Billy feels like hey, this is the kind of place that in order to connect with the audience, we're going to have to break out uh, an old song, then that's what we'll do. Whatever, whatever we can do to break through with the audience every night, you know, we, we don't have, we have a set list, but if we have to break it up and do something different, then uh, that's what we'll do. So it just all depends on where we are, how it's feeling that night, and uh, how, uh, how we're going to be able to connect with the people that are there. 
Well, yeah, I mean, believe me, we've had our we've had our Blues Brothers moments <laughs> where you know we're playing at some place out in the woods in the country, you know, like at some club that we have no business at. <laughs> you know, the old proverbial chicken wire uh, place, and uh, uh, all of a sudden, you know, we look at each other and we go, you know what, we better play, I'll give you a ring when you give me back my balls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> so we'll do that every now and then. So we have a couple of the more hillbilly songs in our pocket, mm-hmm. just in case, and uh we generally played that mountain, which was a song from my first solo record that Marty Stewart produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually play that in the encore just because it's an audience favorite. And it's, uh, uh, we've been playing it in the encore for years and years. And, uh, and, but it's, it's pretty rocking, even though it's a hillbilly song. So, uh, we play that a lot, almost every time. Uh, but uh, like JD said, we mostly stick to stuff in the last several years, and uh, you know, and a lot of uh, a lot of the audience, you know, that come to see us. Uh, well, there are certain cities where, you know, we're like the Beatles. I mean, Kansas City is one of them. Springfield, Illinois. Th- these are places that we're really big in. Yeah, and they know our music. But you know, we may play in New York, and some of these people, or most of them, may have never heard a song we played. So. You better have some damn good melodies. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some great melodies and some great stuff on the new album, Spec. This will be my last question, and I'll let you guys go. Why did you call it Spec? What about it? Where did that name come from? That's such a cool name. Well, the idea behind the record, because it is a thematic record, and it's about the problems in your own backyard as well as global problems, political and social issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a song about the homeless in there. There's a song about the beauty and the power of nature yes. versus versus humans, uh, which, you know, it's like, they're, yeah, sure, it's beautiful and awesome, but it's also devastating to people, you know. And it's a song that's literally about a tornado, because J.D. and I grew up in Tornado Alley. and uh, uh, So speck really just means, you know, we're little specks of stardust in this giant universe, and none of us understand it. We're trying to figure out our place in it. And then to have Jeff Emmerich produce it, who produced Sgt. Pepper, which is a thematic album, you know, or concept record in a way, or at least it turned out that way, uh, uh, that was the idea behind it. And so Speck is like, hey, we're just little humans all trying to get by here. <laughs> I love it. Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrew, thank you This was wonderful. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to see you in Sellersville in just over a week. If you want tickets to see Boxmasters when they come to your town, especially all you listeners in New York that I know we have, make sure to visit uh, theboxmasters.com, which is also linked in the description box on talkfor2.com. So if you're listening there, you can just click it. Make sure to subscribe in iTunes on Stick to Radio. And if you don't visit our website, make sure you do, because there's a video there. You can contact me at talkfor2 at gmail.com. Which, uh, or excuse me, talkfor2cast at gmail.com, which is also linked on talkfor2.com. So that is our mothership. I love it. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at talkfor2. That's it for us today. Thanks again to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. We talked about them at the top of the show. Tune in again in just under a week on July 4th when we celebrate the holiday with an all-American icon. I could not 
picture a more perfect person to air as our Independence Day episode because I think he knows more about American history and and the history of things in this country than, than anybody. He's just such a smart guy. Rick Harrison of History Channel's Pawn Stars. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>